Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Dale Graff, who was director of the Stargate program, among other things. Welcome, Dale. How you how you doing today? I am. That's fine. Looking forward to our discussions. All right. Well, let's start from the very beginning. So where are you from? What did you study in college? What degrees do you have? Because I want to give the audience a sense of the caliber of folks who were leading the, the Stargate program. Okay, fine. <clears throat> well, my background is really uh, quite basic. I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania in a farming community. And uh, Where, Whereabouts in, in eastern Pennsylvania? Okay, you know, there's a little area near Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, yep. Allentown, Reading, in that, in that vicinity, at the base of the Blue Mountains. Grew up on a farm, so we had a, had a, a very remote wilderness kind of background with the farm animals and the meadows and the fields. So I had a lot of time to walk around and think about things. We had no electricity on the farm, and in today's standards, it would be really quite primitive. You know, but we didn't mm-hmm. think of it as as kids didn't think of it as being primitive. And I had a younger sister. And also an older one. After we moved to a small town when I was about 13, 14 years old, and I attended the area high school, Hamburg High School, which is north of Reading, Pennsylvania. And I might add, it's a very picturesque area. It's like an old German community. And this is the Pennsylvania Dutch part of of Pennsylvania, by the way. The Blue Mountains and the Appalachian Trail is right behind me. And uh, after that, I went to Pennsylvania State University and had picked up a degree in, in aeronautical aerospace engineering and eventually also a, a degree in physics. My initial employment was in the aerospace industries on the Gemini program and a few of the other space programs, but that was the big one in terms of moving into space. It was a stepping stone for the Apollo that uh, then evolved from that technology as well as the space shuttle technology that came basically from some of those early programs. And then I you know, left, left the aerospace world after about nine or 10 years and joined the government at a facility in Dayton, Ohio, an organization known as the Foreign Technology Division. And our responsibility in that organization was to, was to assess the developments of foreign weapon systems, especially in the Soviet Union. And I became quite involved in the analysis of Soviet missiles and Soviet airplanes and that kind of situation that would potentially pose a a technological threat to this country. Now, when you were at Wright-Patterson, were you involved in just analyzing the data from some of these systems, or did they actually acquire some of these systems from the Arab-Israeli conflicts during that time period, et cetera, that you were able to at least try to reverse engineer? Yeah, well, the analysis that we did was based on all all sources of data, not just the radar and the satellite photography that was just then emerging as a a big thing. In fact, that was the forerunner of the modern-day communication system that we now have and enjoy this particular means of communication that we're using right now. It's this wonderful internet. So at Wright-Patterson and at FTD, the Foreign Technology Division, we integrated whatever we could get hold of, including material that could be obtained one way or another, either from a crash or from somebody walking or sneaking out of the countries carrying valuable pieces of equipment, anything we could get hold of. We would, we would then analyze that, determine its capabilities. 
there was a place at Edride Patterson where he actually stored the, the sparring equipment. And uh, I'm sure it's still there. It's just a storehouse of what we could would gather. And we filtered that into the technical analysis that we were, were doing anyway. So they just added a bit of ground truth to what we were trying to determine in the first place. Were there any Soviet systems that you analyzed at the time that, at least at the time, frightened you in terms of capability? So as an example... I know that I think during the early 80s, Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger was looking at better distributing the nuclear missile stockpile in ways that would prevent the Russians from taking them out because I think the Russians developed something that made their aiming circles much more accurate. So they were looking at, I know Dr. Ash Carter looked at crazy ideas, like putting the MX missile warheads on blimps and, and things like that to try that, which was quickly ruled out. But was there anything that frightened you, at least back in the day, that's not still classified? Well, at that time, we were looking at all kinds of uh, possibilities. In fact, I was the chief of a, of a um, transit forecast group. So our, our job was to, with a small team of analysts, to look at the data and then make projections. What could the Soviets develop in the next 10 to 15 years? So we were looking ahead. So we looked at all these possibilities. And, and of course, one of the things you talked about a moment ago, what we called the MERV, the Multiple Independent Reentry Vehicle, that was a big concern. So, so a lot of the analysis that we were doing from intercepted radar signals and telemetry from tests that the Soviets conducted with systems going into Kamchatka. It's a big peninsula right north of Japan. Mm-hmm. And, Russian Far East. Yeah, we could get uh, close enough to them with the, well, actually, navies. The Navy had ships out there and, and uh, detection equipment. So we could get close enough to the peninsula to actually intercept some of that telemetry, uh, the same telemetry that, that they were intercepting or using to do, to do their analysis. And from that work, from those signals, we were able to deduce something about the number of reentry vehicles. And of course, that was a, a big thing. And that's what, like you mentioned earlier, led to this idea of distributing our own forces, our own missile forces. And, and of course, we also looked at patterns from the tests that they conducted, you know, from satellite photography. You know, we could actually see where the impacts were from their MERVs. So you can determine what's called a ZP, circular area of probability. So from that information, you get assessments of the of the, of the, you know, the technological threat, you know, how accurate were they? And of course, that stirred up the requirement to, to respond. And therefore, these different basing systems were thought of. And of course, the, the one that was being favored at the time was the one that was based on movable the railroad cars moving throughout the country, or at least in the Northwest and, and the Midwest. And that turned out to be a, a, a real problem. <laughs> in fact, I was on a team, a separate team set aside to try to figure out ways of defeating that. <laughs> Putting on my so-called red hat, pretending I was a Soviet analyst, what would I do to actually negate the effects of this random arrangement of uh, missiles in a shell? Uh, <laughs> one out of 20, which one has it? That kind of thing. So, yeah, it was a really interesting time then, getting caught up in not only looking at the emerging threat, but also looking at the counter threat that our information stirred up out of the congressional committees and the approval for new developments to, to combat them. And now, now you had mentioned also other things about material. 
Well, one of the, the biggest direct projects I was involved in was when the Soviet pilot had defected, and actually it was a bomber-style airplane, a T-22, at FTD, since we were primary in the Department of Defense for analyzing aircraft and missile systems, our organization sent a team of analysts to try to recover that airplane, which actually crashed somewhere in, in Africa. The team was in Africa looking for it. This is the aircraft they found with remote viewing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we used the remote viewing technique, which was just, we were just beginning to look at it at that time in 1979. And we, we were able to come up with, the, the individual I worked with uh, was able, came up with a sketch and a map, and uh, we sent that information to the, the field team. And they were uh, using that, they were able to go back by helicopter 78 to 80 miles from where they had been looking for it, and they were ready to give up and leave the country. But they, they got to the spot that we had indicated, and uh, within about a mile, a mile and a half, it turned out that's where the airplane was, the crashed airplane. And so we've, the team was able to get in there and get the electronics out of it. Out of to get out of country in time before they had to leave. So that was a very successful recovery, aided by remote viewing. Now, did the Russians send their own recovery team to get that aircraft? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure they were on their way. It took a while for them to realize that there was a defector that took off with us or flew south uh, in the Soviet bomber. Actually, it had, it had been stationed in Libya, the, the bomber itself. So it probably wasn't exactly immediately known that this um, pilot defected. So, oh, yeah, I'm sure they were looking for it as well. To my knowledge, we never tangled with any team from the Soviet Union. So that might have been in the same area looking around. But they didn't have the same information that that, that are on Even when you went there, though, did you have contingency plans for that? And were you accompanied by at least some form of operators that would there to protect you, or was it just, yeah, well, just nobody, they don't know about it yet, so we'll be yeah, fine? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a team of analysts. I was not actually in the field. I was on the state side working on the issue. And so just our information was sent to the team field. But, you know, they were, they were there on their own. You know, it was a risky situation. There was a CIA representative or uh, agent with, with them as well. Okay. And other protective sources. So they weren't in okay. The, so it might have been the SOG, like special operations group, yeah, paramilitaries. <clears throat> People that could handle the helicopter and get in and out quickly and all that kind of stuff. So, so it is it, a, a highly secret activity and it took years before the information really was released. And I think President Carter eventually talked about that in some of his presentations, not just the, the recovery of vital parts from this crashed Soviet bomber, but also the use of what he called Air Force psychics <laughs> to find it. So, so he made it publicly known as well. So we got some publicity out of it, although it may not have been the, the best publicity because it made our own command a little, a little more concerned about how much information we, we can actually divulge to the public before um, and there are repercussions. You know, not not everyone was supportive of the activities we were in, but we had to be extremely guarded in the chain of command. Some commanders didn't think much of the, of the topic, and, but, and others were very supportive. Were there any exotic weapons that you reviewed or looked at that the Soviets had? And by exotic, I mean things like some 
disturbing new chemical warfare agent or biological agent or weather weapons, satellite killers, weapons that are out of the ordinary and of a non-conventional nature. Well, you know, we were also the representative for a working group that looked at all kinds of information, no matter how strange it was. And we didn't really know what it meant at the time. And some of that information I've learned years later actually was connected with exotic systems like high energy lasers or using some of the concepts that Tesla had talked about way back um, during his research out there at Colorado Springs. So we saw some of that in a test data, but we didn't maybe, we didn't really recognize what it was at the time, other than there there was something unusual going on. So there were some tip-offs. Now, I was not directly involved with the chemical biological warfare side. And there was another group right next to where I was located. So that was another one that was uh, had some weird stuff that, you know, was speculated upon. And there was evidence about, and particularly with the way the Soviets went about testing some of the stuff, using prisoners and whatever. But I didn't really go in that direction. I stayed more in the technology, the high-energy lasers, the newer developments that might have to do with post-energy, new ways of applying the emerging nuclear forces, that kind of thing. Plus, also looking at new physics concepts that maybe wasn't were not even on the test board yet, but we could find evidence of it in some of the literature if we dug hard enough and put pieces together in, in some of the classified literature that we were able to get hold of, different concepts of, of wave propagation and communication and how to apply that in a biological form for possibly affecting the physiology or mental resources, that kind of thing. Is this related to the more recent news reports we've seen of the Havana syndrome? Yes. Yeah, it, it might have been. You know, some things that could possibly be related to that. Well, but I, with the best of my knowledge, nothing was ever definitively proven that was being employed in, at the embassies in in, so in Moscow or elsewhere. You, you can't rule it out. It, it could still have been some kind of biological effect. A weapon or frequency, what we call non-ionizing electromagnetic radiation. I looked into that in some depth. And ironically, on this whole issue of embassies, I, I was actually assigned as a team leader for and sent to Moscow in 1982-83 for three or four months to actually look at or search the new embassy building that's being constructed for evidence of bugs and whatever. And while there, of course, look around to see if there was any evidence of the personnel being affected or, or at least being radiated or, or exposed to these, these kinds of sources. And we, we didn't find any of that, although we did find plenty of evidence of devices that were being not even snuck into the building, but embedded in the building. Yeah, uh, probably like built into the walls and designed yeah, into it, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of the material that that, that we've, we discovered there, and that we found using high energy X-ray devices, that was a laborious job. <laughs> I'm, I'm still thawing out from that one. It's been a long time uh, moving that heavy equipment around in the building, which didn't even have windows or, or anything other than the cement structures. Looking with this device, uh, what the X-ray could reveal what might be embedded in the material, the cement, the iron beams and whatever. And of course, we did find uh, evidence. And that's evidence is what led to the, the actual decision 
to tear down the entire building, which which is what we then did. And then if you if you if you go to U.S. Embassy Moscow and Google that, you will find the history of this. So you have a nice little history there of, of how this came about. <laughs> so now there's a really nice new building there. And if I were a State Department appointee, I really would look forward to being assigned there. Of course, not under the current conditions, <laughs> politically speaking. Yeah, so there were a lot of interesting things that I was personally involved in, and some of this just came up independent of my main activities. So it's just something that happened. Because <laughs> I was in the right place at the right time. So you're at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base working in the Foreign Technology Division. How do you end up at Fort Meade, or at least on the get back to the East Coast to work <clears throat> on this quote-unquote, psychic spy program. Yes, well, how do you trace these strange things? By the way, I had had one more question. I have to ask this question. This is the most obvious question. People are probably kicking me for not asking it, so I'll ask it. While you were at Wright-Patterson, the Foreign Technology Division, at least now, I don't know about back then, is widely rumored to have received non-terrestrial materials from an intelligent entity of some sort, either from a crash so it could be UFO, it could be time machine for all I know. I have no idea what if the crash at Roswell was real. I don't pretend to know if they came from space or from another dimension or whatever, or if it even happened. But there are widely rumors that if that happened, it, parts were taken back to Wright-Patterson. While you were there, were there any local rumors, things like that? During the time I was actually stationed or, or living in the area, that was between 1964 and 1982. Yeah, I'd say almost every year there, there were rumors about uh, our organization or some other Air Force entity on Wright Patterson having stored unusual debris. The only sources that I was personally aware of were, were foreign made, the Soviet Union or some other foreign country. Now, I'd heard a lot about Hangar 18, I believe it was the number that was given in, in other places at Ryan Patterson that was supposed to have more exotic material. I even, look, I even went around and look, looked at the building one time and talked to people that were familiar with it. I couldn't find any evidence that that was ever used for storing anything other than excess office equipment. So I could never personally validate of that those stories, but they they certainly floated around. They were they were certainly in the airways, so to speak, and it, it came up frequently, especially when there were conferences held in the Ryan Patterson area that was sponsored by UFO study groups, for example. Then the rumors really spiked about that time. But I personally, and also my colleagues as well, because I had talked to them about this as also, and you couldn't find anything really definitive that we had anything like that. So it's either well guarded or there was nothing to the rumors. I, I, I can't go beyond that. Were there any units, you said there was another unit nearby that worked on nuclear, biological, and chemical, NBC, Seaburn, whatever they call it nowadays. Yeah. Were there any other groups that worked on other intelligence issues that you just didn't know what their mission was? They were just there working on stuff? Well, as in any organization, you always have compartments. Our organization was strictly a technological-oriented, and whatever the technology was, whether it be materials or whether it be propellants or whether it be CW, BW, 
this chemical, biological, or just straightforward systems capabilities. There were these areas that were kind of independent of one another. We didn't really have access to all of their activities. So it's kind of like a need to know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there were, there were groups that studied these different areas. I'm sure there were topics that I never became aware of also. So. For the record, you know you had no personal knowledge of any programs or anything there. That's not to say that it's possible that somebody else could have been working on it. You just had no knowledge whatsoever that could confirm that. Now, let me give that a caveat right from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) The the organization, Fine Technology Division, did have a what's called a UFO hotline. Up until the time the Air Force closed the program in 1969, I think it was, maybe 1970. In fact, there for a while, before their office area moved around, I I was actually located right next to the... uh, this is what you called a Project Blue Book office. So I had access to the files and, and, and during the lunch period or after duty, just many times, just spent some time plying through them. They were really quite interesting. But the hotline that FTD had was a telephone that was given to the general public. And, and if anyone saw anything that would be considered unusual, maybe UFO-like or whatever. They were calling the report, and they would even send in material that they had gathered from the site if they saw something drop from the craft as it took off, which, which happened a number of times. I can remember personally looking at a letter that was sent to the FTD, and the person that sent it claimed that it fell from them. A craft that he saw taking off and just sent it to us. And had all kinds of really unusual symbols and writings on it. We had our analysts who are familiar with them, all kinds of languages, to look at it and linguists and then analyzed it from a, whatever we could do from, from a letter fanatics point of view. And uh, we couldn't find anything relevant to any understanding that we had. The, the only thing we did discover in that one case, if, if you held the paper up to a light, you would see the word onion printed on the back. So that was a common paper used in those days for typing onion paper. <laughs> so but that was hardly extraterrestrial. So that's the kind of thing that we had to deal with. It, it was not a purposeful hoax. The individual was really sincere and just happened to find this discarded paper out there. And, Correlated with a sighting. So, and there never other pieces of evidence that were sent in, which I never really understood what happened to them. Maybe it was just fragments of this or that. Uh, that probably fell off of an airplane. You know, you never know where it came. But there was nothing. Yeah, that, it came off of a like a piece of a meteorite or something. Well, that right? could, Who knows? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I, I've seen meteorites uh, at night come real close in the flash, but I've never later on in the daytime. Actually, the fine word here, so it's really hard to pin down when you see a flash. But in the Southwest, people find these, uh, I don't say routinely, but they, they are prickable in the, in the desert if you know what you're looking for. So, yeah, I, I'm sure we had some of them, that, that kind of material sent to to our, to, to that, to our thousand for whatever they did with it. I was never in the loop for the final analysis of it, except for the few pieces I had a direct connection with okay so you have degrees in aeronautical engineering and physics so you are a hard science guy 
right? Hard physical sciences. Yeah, I, I like to think that, you know, I mean, really, really plowed in, into the program for many years. You know, it was not that easy to stay with a, an engineering degree, um, program. So, yeah, I, and, you know, that was my main interest in high school, math and science. So, so you know, I, I just gravitated toward that field. Plus, so <clears> with- I always had a long-standing interest in the science of flight and I built model airplanes and, and that. And, and of course, World War II came along when I was quite young, and that, that influenced my thinking as well toward the, the airplane aerodynamics, the space world. And so you're right. I, I had a, a solid background and interest in science and technology. I was very comfortable working math and physics in, in high school. So with that kind of background, how did you end up at Project Stargate? Okay. So you're at right, Pat. Like, it was just also highly technical, very physical science oriented, yeah. uh, very de- very concrete, physical material. How did you end up in this non-material field? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've thought about that a lot of times. <clears throat> you know, I actually, I think I had an inkling that there was something more than what physical science was telling us when as a kid child and i think many many youngsters have this uh, sense that there's uh, more than what's apparent that there are things that can be perceivable that are not explainable and so when i was quite young i, I did have i was a really good dreamer and i remember dreams a lot I'm quite young and some of those dreams had material in it that i really didn't understand and i think it had Precognitive material in it as well. Can you give just a quick example? We'll do. We're going to do a whole episode on lucid dreaming, but just a quick example of a dream that you may have had that was more relevant later in life that may have been precognitive. Well, I had the the, the sensation of, of being places as if it were very real. Uh, walking around the barn at night, walking around the fields, and then saying, "Wow." I didn't think I was a sleepwalker. Here I am out in the field, but no, I wasn't. I was still back in bed. And so those brief experiences, they didn't last long as a kid, but they were enough to make me realize that in the dreaming mind can really experience some really unusual, weird scenarios. And so, but I didn't stay with it. I became more interested in the science of technology and just moved away from that experience and this phenomenon. But then years later, when I was on a special assignment to, to Hickam Air Force Base, this is when I was still employed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I, I received an overseas assignment to, to Hickam Air Force Base for a brief period of time. Well, for a year and a half. It's not that brief, almost two years. During the Vietnam War, and I was an analyst actually doing aircraft analysis and tactics work for the Pacific Command. And it was a, during one of the assignments, I had been overseas for a while, Japan, Okinawa, and, and when I came, came back, went into the surf just to relax, and I shouldn't have gone in. And it was a really uh, incredible situation where I was able to find somebody that I should never have been able to find and, and bring her back and save her life. And so a life-saving experience will change your mind, whether it's your own or whether you are involved in, in saving someone. And it was the shock of the experience it was so incredible that I think it affected my intuitive abilities and it really opened it up more than ever before. And I realized Wow, there's really a lot here. How could I find that person? You know, there's, there's no way I could have done it. 
So that, that got me into looking into the topic of intuition in, in a more serious way. And uh, I was able to locate in the Honolulu Library the uh, volumes of research published in the Journal of Parapsychology. I had never had not known it existed at all. Nobody ever told me about ESP research or the work by J.B. Ryan at Duke University in the 20s and 30s. So it was a whole new area for me, for me to, to discover. And uh, I just latched onto it. It's it just incredible to find this material. It, it resonated with me beyond what I can even say rationally you know, could have been a reason for it. And because of that interest, when I returned from that assignment, I started paying attention to what the Soviets were doing in, uh, in this field because I found some references that indicated they were doing ESP research and that there were incredible electrical engineers involved with publishing papers in the electrical journal there, which I was able to find copies of. And I summarized that. I just had a strong interest in this, and I thought it would be interesting just to pull it together and summarize it in a book, a two-page paper that I included in one of my annual reports on the overall threat assessments for the next 10 to 15 years, which, which I was responsible for producing. And the commander in our organization really thought this was quite interesting and told me to keep following the Soviet work on that. Well, I did. I kept collecting more data than from the class. Who was your commander at the time? Was it a colonel, general? No, that was a general. General Marks, yeah. So eventually, unbeknownst to me, Harold put off and Russell Tart at Stanford Research Institute, who had been working for a couple of years earlier on what's called remote viewing. And they came to our organization to look for government funding or because their funding sources had uh, been in them. I think the CIA started it and then they, they did not continue for political reasons more than anything. So the, the FTD commander called me into the meeting to, when Russell and Harold were there and attended the briefing which, where they explained remote viewing research and what they've been doing and what they were looking for. And, the commander said, well, that's interesting. I think we'll support the, you for another year. And he assigned me as a contract manager because I already had shown an interest in the topic and knew something about it, whereas other people in the organization didn't know very much at all about it and, and probably even ridiculed it. So that's sort of how I got involved. Now, who, who was your employer at the time? Was it the DOD? Was it the Air Force? Yeah, this is Air Force Foreign Technology Department. Uh I'm still there. This occurred in 1976. And I was with the Air Force um, at the Foreign Technology Division in Dayton, Ohio, between 1962 and 1982. Um, then, so the Air Force Department of Defense became involved as uh, supporting the, the research at the Stanford Research Institute on remote viewing. And I was appointed the contract manager for that activity. So I, I maintained that role until I transferred to the Department of Defense element known as the Defense Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C. in 1982, where I continued my connection with the, with the field, with the topic. In addition to my ordinary role as the chief of the Advanced Concepts Unit at the DIA, which looked into future developments in the Soviet Union that might be in, in the far term, you know, advanced physics concepts, that kind of thing. Well, this uh, is a random question, but you must have overlapped with Andrew Marshall at the Office of Net Assessment inside the Pentagon? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. I, I, I can't remember the name per, per, per se, but I sure, I sure did get involved in those elements. 
I even wrote papers for some of those organizations, and including a group known as the National Intelligence Estimate Group. So, yeah, I was connected with a number of people over the years, including contacts at the Advanced Defense Analysis Program Office, DARPA. So, you know, I, I did have those links with other groups, and not just intelligence, but U.S. U.S. developers as well. And at one point, became involved with the stealth technology developments in this country, mainly to understand what to look for in the Soviet work that I was involved in at the time. So I was actually in both fields, <laughs> the, the U.S. R&D from the point of view of following their work and having a small hand in, in helping direct some of the research through the assessments that we came up with. And and also deeply involved in working with the fine data that we've been able to get hold of and analyze and, and de- develop our, our, our threat assessments from. Now, when you were still going back to the Air Force before you went to the DIA, you know you mentioned that you funded at least for a year Russell Targ and how put off at SRI. Did the Air Force have them train any remote viewers that stayed at Great Patterson or? Elsewhere. Yeah, what happened here was, of course, I was connected with it for three years. We therefore actually had three years worth of contractual work because our contracts only can only go for one year at a time because it was more of an analysis funding. We're not truly an R and D organization, so we couldn't go longer than one year at a time. But when when I first became involved in, in monitoring and helping direct the research that Hal and Russ were doing. Naturally, I thought about our own organization, and maybe there are people within it that have the talent. Maybe I can find them, you know, or maybe look around and see what I can do to locate people that had an interest. Now, this topic was not one that you went around advertising. It was just a sensitive issue, not because of anything classified, but because of the nature of, of, of the topic. Most conventional scientists really at that time just didn't mind anything to do with psychic things, as they call them. <laughs> yes, um, even, even today, you would yeah. have thought that they would have. It's not as bad today, but back in yeah. the 70s, it was, you really had to be careful. Also, the country was a lot more religious back then. So there's. Yeah, and you know, it was really unusual that, that we had a commander that was open. Any other commander that I've ever been working under in the Air Force would not have uh, accepted it. So this was just sort of a luck of the draw, so to speak. Even before I had a chance to do anything openly, as, as, as much as I could openly within the organization, because we wanted to have people that really were had the clearance that were within the Air Force. I was approached by a, a couple of people and, and heard rumors about my involvement with the remote viewing research. And I worked with them and, and, and just simply did, did experiments with them. Okay, if you can do what you think you're, you can and what you're telling me, let's just do a few projects. So I set up some standard remote viewing type of activity. I'm going to be somewhere tonight. Can you tell me where I am? That, that's kind of situation. The kind of approach that Helen Russ used in the very early days of um, the work at SRI. And I, I found a, a couple of people that really could do this real well. And it's not a scientific thing, but just enough for me to be satisfied that, that they knew what they were talking about. And they did have the talent. And then one of, it was one of those people that was brought into the, um, the finding of that Soviet airplane that I told you about. 
earlier that crashed in Africa. They're not trained. These people are just happening walking off the streets, or walking off the, the hallway, so to speak, and had the, had the ability. They were just naturals. And I've found it in a number of people. Once you start talking around it, about this and you can open up to them, they're not concerned who they're talking to. They'll be ridiculed or whatever. They'll admit that they have experiences like this. They just haven't really put it to the test to see just how much how accurate they could be or, or what they can do with it. So there were two or three people that, that identified don't no need to do any training. They, they were good from the very beginning, pretty much like the individuals that Helen Russ used initially for the early SRI work. So that, those are the people I worked with. This was unofficial because the commander did not want this to be known even a, a, a semi-formal part of the, our mission. We were just looking at it as an adjunct, as something we could do to, to learn something from. Uh, because our main purpose of being involved with supporting the research at SRI was it was simply to see if the phenomena could be, would it stay up? Is it really for real, you know, to replicate some of the work they did? We didn't want to rely on what was done in the past. We wanted to you know, repeat some of that and, and replicate it. And also, where we could, from the Soviet data that I was able to obtain, could we evaluate that? We had that data also as a mission as well, because that was our fundamental mission anyway, to assess the foreign capabilities. So applying it in any kind of operation was sort of a secondary thing. It just happened. It came along when when that mission turned up to find the missing Soviet airplane. We also worked on missing U.S. airplanes as well, with a moderate success. And in fact, one of them, we actually located an airplane within a quarter of a mile uh, of where we said it would be in, in a remote area of Arizona. The problem is, it was not the right airplane. It was another airplane that went missing. <laughs> so, you know, close, but not close enough. So we did that. And, and I had a, a lot of uh, other projects that we worked on, more or less to, to explore the, the nature of the phenomenon. Uh, you know, how accurate could it be for certain tasks and that that kind of thing. But when I, when I moved to, because um, then the Air Force abandoned the work, Mainly because the general in charge of the Air Force and in the Pentagon change of command. <laughs> what to do with this topic? And uh, I, th- I think there were some. I don't know if there's philosophical or you know, religious aspects involved, or, or just he just simply was not informed exactly what we were doing. He just simply jumped to get rid of it. And plus, there was, I think the possibility he thought that if it were real, it might threaten the, the MX basing concept. Here we are back to the MX basing again. <laughs> it's amazing how this thing circles around. <laughs> so when he canceled it, but you talk about coincidence, almost within a few weeks, an assignment came to FTD for someone to be uh, the representative for the red, the red, put on your red hat. And you think, Soviet, what can you do to defeat the MX missile? Here I am on it again. <laughs> I guess you just couldn't get rid of it. Well, I mean, you were able to use that general's argument against him and then use it again, I'm assuming, to say, well, if the Soviets can do it, we absolutely have to figure out how to do it. Only a second time around, I kept my mouth shut about about using remote viewing. So about the possibility that Soviets could have used remote viewing to narrow down uh, the probabilities of locating 
which are the 20 uh, empty canisters on the railroad truck. Um, I had the real missile. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I was on, on um, the, the, the team was actually sent into the desert to a place where they were developing this, where we could actually work around and look at these things and figure out how whether seismic or any kind of electromagnetic signal or a vibration could identify which of those canisters had something that was not a dummy in it. <laughs> so no, I was kind of glad to see the whole program scrubbed, the whole, the whole landmarks concept. That would have been a nightmare logistically in this country had that gone forward. But anyways, an interesting history, and somehow I got wrapped up in it. <laughs> but when I transferred to DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, that was, that was history for me. I didn't have to go back to that one again. And then uh, I just continued on with my involvement in different roles. And then an Army Intelligence Unit in Fort Meade, Maryland, had uh, in 1979 set up a uh, operation, what they call an application unit at Fort Meade. So I worked with them from a liaison point of view because we were they were Army and we were the Defense Intelligence Agency, and of course the DIA is our overall manage, manager of of all of the DoD intelligence activities. So I became involved there from a, a liaison point of view, and then when the Army decided to leave the, the effort, we were absolutely assisting the transfer of the, the Army remote viewers into the Defense Intelligence Agency around 1985-86. And, 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 and within a few years, um, I was actually transferred into the unit as as, as the one of the, uh, as a chief at that time. But it was solely before that, when you were able to transfer the remote viewing operational activity to the Defense Intelligence Agency, is when I came up with the name Stargate. Because we had to, we had to change code word names for the activity every three or four, every couple of years, three years, and some of the words were really you know, awful kinds of words you can't even pronounce them. Just, these are just ways worse to keep track of the of a project, and also to keep track and, and tight control of the, of the people and have access to it, and to protect the people that are involved in it as well. So I came up with the word Stargate, and that sort of hung in there nicely. And it's now, of course, the, the favorite term for the activity in, 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 a, in a retro sense. It also includes some of the, the work that was done from a research point of view. So, yeah. So yeah, I think I, they had, I think, I think at various times it was called Center Lane. Yeah. Lane, Sun yeah, Street. The ones like Gondola, where it's Center Lane, Grill Flame, and one or two others, Dragoon Absorb. That was, more, that was more or less a term applied for the financial aspects, but it applied to more than just simply this project. So, sure, there were, there were these, these odd names. And, and the code words are just simply a, a way that the security division keeps track of these different projects and uh, make sure that it's tight control of it of people I know about it. So when when you get these code words, these names, these project names, uh, and now this is, of course, in addition to the typical caveats like secret, top secret, whatever. These are additional terms that are put onto the, the papers and the reports. You have to go to a Department of Defense booklet or pamphlet that lists dozens, if not hundreds of possibilities, and you choose one of them. Uh, depending on the nature of, of, of the task, 
Uh, and none of the ones of the hundreds or so I looked at made any good sense to me. I was hoping to find something somewhat inspirational or something symbolic. There's nothing like that in here. You know, who, who wants to have a project called Cement Mixer? That kind of thing, <laughs> named after their activity. <laughs> and Center Lane was neutral, but not very exciting. <laughs> so I thought the term Stargate would be a very nice symbolic kind of word to use, you know. This has a lofty sense to it, and it's, of course, looking ahead, <laughs> up, <laughs> so to speak. So, yeah, and um, I, I had to get that word approved through the Department through the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> so I had to write letters justifying this, this name, this project name, this code word that was not in the book, not in the approved list. So I had to write the paperwork for that, which is just simply a letter or two, but it, it goes to show the extent of the control that, that was held on these projects. So that's how it came about. Now, when you're working on the Stargate program, this is a bit of a random question, but sure. I, I still haven't been able to figure out the answer. There's a remote viewer out there who I've interviewed who is uh, – he was subsequently trained by Dr. Paul H. Smith – but before that, he was trained by someone who claimed to be a former special forces operator. Either I don't know if he was enlisted officer, but the gentleman's name is Lee L E I G H Culver C U L V E R, and there's no tie to him to at least the Fort Meade unit. Have you ever run across this individual at all? No, uh, no. I had the entire list of names. That was one of my responsibilities when I became chief of the unit. It was to make sure that you are up to date on who is access, who has been given access to the Stargate and the remote viewing work. And no, that name I do not recognize at all. If he was involved at all with um, the field, it had to be off to the side somewhere that we didn't know about. The phenomenon itself is, is, is not a secret thing. You go back to the early SRI days, and they were just bringing people in right off the street, so to speak. You know, people that read lots of activity in the San Francisco paper. In fact, that's how Pat Price, one of the, the best remote viewers that I've seen on, on record, in addition to Ingram Swan, he came to SRI. He saw, he saw an article in the San Francisco paper. So the, the phenomena is not a secret thing. And, and in fact, we, what's really going on here is early researchers really took a, an existing phenomenon that having called something like extrasensory perception or terms like clairvoyance results that were also used commonly for the ability of people to describe different distant scenes or obtain information that was blocked from their ordinary way of knowing. And that's the fundamental way of defining remote viewing. Now, eventually, you got tangled up with, with the training techniques, and then the trainers are there saying that, well, unless you follow my procedure, then it's not remote viewing or it's, it's something else. Well, I'm looking beyond that, and I'm looking at the, the basic aspect of the phenomenon, which is, it's, it's a there. It's been around, and you don't need to be read in. You don't need to be really that trained in it. They just have to um, work at it. So a lot of people are are discovering that, and of course they think that it relates to the remote viewing program officially. And it may not. It may just be something that's floating around there. You know, 
the buildup from maybe the early J.B. Ryan days doing ESP card testing, you know, you're going to be on that. There are many ways of, of exercising this natural ability that we have. The idea and the approach used by remote viewing, it was just this one method. You know, there, there are others. What I did then with people, and I just simply used a basic relaxing technique without any, any particular complex protocol and achieved similar results. Now, there are advantages to having a procedure and going through a training process. And I think that's like in any training effort. You know, I used to play tennis many years ago. And, you know, I could appreciate the idea of persistence and training and repetition and uh, that. It's just like any sport or any learning activity requires uh, intent and concentration. So, and there are nuances, there are variations that can follow to help people. And it may be some people uh, latch on to method A better than method B. And so I'm very neutral about how do you become a remote viewer. I think there's so many different ways of, of doing it, depending on how you define uh, what it is you want to do. Anyway, there are people there that say they were directly connected with the program. I keep getting emails even now about that, which I never heard of. But that doesn't mean that they, they don't know something about the phenomenon. Or, or, or the idea of remote viewing. They just picked it up through avenues that were not in the usual way in which, which we were working remote viewing then and now. So you're at DIA and you take control of this program. What happens after that? Well, the Defense Intelligence Agency, I became the, the, the manager of of that that effort. We were able to write a justification to have the Army people transferred to DIA, and that required congressional approval. We kept control of the facilities in Fort Meade because those were nice buildings to work in. It was, it was removed from the, the ordinary traffic of downtown D.C. and then <laughs> the chaos of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And we, we were off to the side, so to speak, which was nice. Uh, the, the facility was not very glamorous, just an old army barrack, whatever, but it was really comfortable inside. So that was, we kept, the DI kept control of that and then uh, just continued on like we had earlier before the, the army transferred. The people working with different tasks and projects that, that came that we were able to identify. An individual at the DIA was a, a, a main a main supporter and actually uh, enabled the effort to continue probably more than anyone else. And Dr. Jack Ravona is my direct supervisor. So he has a, a big influence on keeping the work going. And, and he and I and, uh, were actually members of a, of a working group that was set up within the Department of Defense that had members of uh, all the different elements, the uh, Navy, the Coast Guard, the Air Force, whatever these service members were that had intelligence interest. And we had CIA members and NSA members as well. And through this organization, we were able to find tasks and projects for the, uh, the group at Fort Meade to continue with, using the, the talent that had existed that was transferred to them and also, since we had new additional positions approved, we also brought in others as well. And some were support staff, 
you know, some were positions that we envisioned you know, ultimately to, to fill. Um, but then things took a downturn, and uh, <clears throat> the commander of that then became director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, who was not um, a fan of the topic, and through various means or others, eventually uh, um, had the unit sort of slow down and, and be transferred to the, to the CIA in 1994 or five. And it was at that time when there was um, a study that was set up to, to evaluate the effectiveness of the unit over the years, but unfortunately, it, it was one of those those committees, and I think I went into the, I, I can't say for sure, but the people I had worked with, I'm pretty firm about it, but that committee, even though they're supposed to be objective scientists, were not as objective as the caveats given to them. And only looked at a certain period of time in uh, maybe the last year or so when things were not moving along very effectively. It just didn't really craze the effort from a truly objective, across the board scientific point of view. And that led to the program being closed in 1995. And of course, that's what the, the director of DIA wanted. And that's what the, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency wanted at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like they had a conclusion. They just wanted yeah, to get the know, conclusion. I hate to make judgments because I don't have all the data, but based on, on discussions I've had with people that were directly involved and others that knew something about the, the committee members themselves, and the fact that one of them was a member of a, a, a well-known critic group, uh, the Committee for Investigation into Claims of the Paranormal, which is known to, to be extremely negative toward uh, this topic. Uh, so, you know, so how can you expect uh, unbiased review to proceed uh, with, with that kind of staffing? Now, there were a few people on the committee that were very objective, uh, some statisticians and all that, but they, were, they could only look at the, the research, but they couldn't really look at the operational activities from a statistical point of view because you just can't analyze that in the same way you can scientific work. So the science part held up, but uh, the application part it did not. So, of course, when, when the program shut down, it also cut off the funding from the, uh, the research that we managed to get congressional support for over the years through the DIA and through other uh, lobbying elements. Because yeah. we weren't the only ones that were able, the DIA was not the only support agency financially. We were able to get funding from the defense analysis from the, the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, and, and the and some of the other elements as well. So, no, there's a lot of interest in, in it. And, you know, you just had to, because there was something about the possibility of not just the application aspect of, of uh, remote viewing, but the implications of it. I mean, if people can do this, if, if anyone can be essentially trained to some level of, of ability, what does this really mean for science? And what, is it, what does it mean for our understanding of consciousness? You know, so that now individuals that are indirectly involved with the hard science have became more interested in the topic because we can see the overlap into the life sciences with the, and the physiology, psychology, medicine, healing, that kind of thing. You can see the potential connection to why others became interested in phenomena. Not that it didn't exist before, but it was just not really widely uh, worked with. You know, <clears throat> I don't think J.P. Ryan at Duke University. Really, my gosh, is a telling story about that. 
um, did, did too much promoting with um, with other uh, elements of science. But he was just, I think, fortunate to continue as long as he did as well. So going back to the working group that you had established with Dr. Jack Verona, yeah. it, was this the group where the target requests came from? It was, yeah, it was one of the sources. <clears throat> and later on in the program, it was probably the email source. You know, sometimes we just went out asking or becoming involved with people and asking what the particular um, deficiencies were, or what projects did they, or what knowns did they have that perhaps our activity could could, could help. And you know, at one point later on in the program, we became directly involved with uh, the customs department. Now, uh, this was a little uh, a different application set from from the technical intelligence. But now we're looking at individuals. We're looking at location. We're looking at the state of health. We're looking at issues that hadn't really been explored that deeply before in the remote viewing trail of research and, and applications. So this was an exciting one because it, it was something you could you know jump into and almost have the feedback or, or resolution that before waiting too long, like some of the technology things we've worked on. Even, even today, I don't think we know ground truth. So some of these just just didn't get resolved correctly. Were we right or not, or whatever? How close were we? So the working with the customs department led to application in the drug interdiction. We we had several assignments over the years. We we had, in fact, I was involved directly with some of these groups. We were there actually on site with them in in the. In their tactical locations, whether it be in San Francisco at uh, Alameda Island or Key West, Florida, or El Paso, they're working directly with the agents, with the people that were trying to determine where the drug traffic was coming from and going to and their tunnels and underneath the border, for example. <clears throat> in fact, in one instance, uh, the remote viewers were able to actually pin down locations. On, on a little island where the drug costs were that were proven or verified. And also, which ships might be carrying them the cargo. Then the Coast Guard could go and take a look to see if that really was the case. So we had those kinds of, of tasks, and we had a situation where we actually at least narrowed down the location possibilities of a fugitive that was on the run for at least three years that the customs department really wanted to locate, but could not. And it just, all the leads dried up and we were brought in to see if we could assist in pinning down his location. And, and you're working projects like this, and you're going, you're going up front and say, look, we, we don't, we can't guarantee the results. We can, we can maybe one out of 10 might be right. And if you one out of 100, that can be close enough to be actionable. We can give you maybe an approximation. We can't guarantee apartment numbers and street addresses. That doesn't seem to be part of the the, um, the reach of, of remote viewing or other forms of this phenomenon. So one of the viewers was able to come in with enough data that was sent, looked actionable, that we sent to the field units and uh, FBI and local law enforcement 
Um, and um, that just happened to be a, a location in Wyoming. And policemen actually um, located the individual and then uh, affirmed that through whatever means they had. And uh, uh, the um, fugitive was apprehended. And he had been on the run for three years. So you know, they were really successful. Uh, Activity and again, it wasn't exact. And here, it was a spot on a, a map, precisely or a parking number. But here's a, a, a landmark. Here's an area. I look around here, and that's what he did. And so it, it worked. The information was coordinated with their ordinary day-to-day activity, and it, it worked out and successfully. So, of course, there were times when we, we couldn't get ground truth to know what happened, particularly if it was in a foreign country. Now, when you, as part of the working group, passed the targets onto the unit, did you give them just a eight-digit grid, or did you give them a packet and then they did the target assignment in the unit? Yeah, well, depending where I was at the time, you know, <clears throat> if I was at the, still in a at the DIA headquarters, then it, it would be a packet or to create a uh, an envelope which simply had a reference number on it without any specifics. So we were doing this, you might say, blind. Whatever information that we'd had at the time, either I would keep or it would be in the sealed envelope only to be opened after the sessions were over for immediate feedback. Okay, so it was effectively double blind for the viewers. Yeah. Yes, effectively double blind from that point of view. Yeah. Now, if if something is really, really urgent immediately, then then we might go, okay, it's, here is so and so. He's missing. Can you find him? <laughs> because already there'd been a lot of information. It would probably be a lot of information in the press. So yeah, you'd almost deduce what the task was about. It, 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 it was silly to think about double blinding in that situation. And plus. Nobody knew where the individual was, so that itself is a, a blind situation. Did you find the results any better or worse if it was double blind versus one of those situations? We didn't really have enough data for me to just say conclusively. I sometimes think for projects involving locating somebody on the run, you just want to go right to it. You know, without you know, this I'm probably going against good scientific protocol here, but. I would say if timing is important, you, you go right to the statement of the project. Here's the person that's missing. What can you do to help find him? Uh, if it's, it's almost like this, like an energetic sort of. Yeah. Because a lot of people focusing energy on something, yeah, maybe it's so, helps that, them a viewer. I'm just, I mean, I'm making, I mean, I'm literally making well, this up I as a right. hypothesis. I think if you see the individuals, the, the a photo of the individual, uh, you know, sometimes I think in operational task, we there's too much uh, attention to the double, triple blinding situation. In my own personal experience, not that I have a lot of it, but in some of the work I've done over the years, independent of the government projects, I found uh, having a picture of the individual that does really help create a sense of, of connectivity. So I would go that route. If the task were to, to find someone, you know, we, we're talking about something here different than a purely technological issue of what is, can you perceive at location at XYZ coordinate or whatever it is, even though this is double blind, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of, I, I think I can speak for a, a lot of you, maybe, or I don't think it has the same kind of energy feeling. It's important. So that's what 
drives it. It's not the, the same kind of urgency as, or connectivity as you have when, when you have a real person on the other end. You know, I'm just, I'm just sort of maybe just my own view. Okay, I'm not speaking for the the field of, of remote viewers here. I'm speaking for myself here. Now, when you assigned targets as part of this working group, did you ever assign anything that you would consider an esoteric target? And by esoteric target, I mean something that was off-world, something that was supernatural. As an example, I know Lynn Buchanan had looked at 64 different people, both at, at two different moments in time, one before and one after death, even though he didn't know that he was looking at them. like. Have you did you assign any esoteric targets? No, as the formal GIA tasking did not have that. Now that's not to say that in some of the practice sessions or some of the sessions that were done offline, but that didn't happen. I cannot deny that. But any official tasking that I was ever connected with did not have that kind of esoteric flavor to it. We stayed strictly with the, the kind of thing that the kind of tasking that, that you and I can look at without being concerned about. So, we, yeah, we, that, that seems to confirm some of the discussions I've had with members yeah. of the Fort Meade unit. Most of the time, if they were assigned, well, they could. I mean, they, they don't. They don't necessarily know where it's coming from. They just know it's from their yeah. immediate yeah. monitor, right? Yeah. But I know David Morehouse said he doesn't think it came. From outside the unit, and if it did, he didn't know where it would have come from. He thought it was a mostly in practice sessions. Sometimes, yeah, it would come from like Ed Dames, things like that. Been a little tighter on, on what practice sessions involve from a management point of view, but you can, you can only manage, manage so much. You know, and some of the people that were involved in in, in training or or practice task definition, I think, it might have gone a little bit too far on, on uh, what what they wanted to have the the viewer respond to or uh, their task. So I, I, I think that probably did happen. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure it did. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm personally aware of some really wild ones, but they weren't really significant <laughs> in my mind. It was just- yeah, my, my sense is it was, there were some that were a little bit more... Yeah level-headed sort of things and then there were some that were kind of chase my fantasy sort of situations so and i'll just leave it at that yeah so but not official and not not part of any tasking that came out of our formal unit with all the committee members that's for certain (laughs) that would never that would never have passed anybody's um, approval yeah, it would have been too political anyway, right? It's easier to do it informally yeah. when you're down well, at the unit, right? We would not want to have a viewer get tangled up with something really strange. You know, we don't know what the, the effects are in the individual subconscious from weird targets. So we would not have wanted to go in that direction at all. Okay, so going back to an earlier theme, by training, you have a strong materialist engineering and physics background how to your knowledge and i know there's probably no no answer to this but i'll ask anyway from a scientific perspective how does remote viewing work or how did people or do people believe it works at least now with the latest 
science and either quantum mechanics or I don't know, super string theory, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the, um, certainly we don't know how it, it really works. We, we can look at one one aspect of it. You know, how does the how do we perceive the information? We can look at ways in which you know there are concepts here like signals. Uh, you know, how do you process weak signals and how do you decrease the noise? So the, these are terms that apply to you know, our, our perception and of it how, in, in the brain side. But how, how does the target itself become manifest in um, subconsciousness, wherever that target is? It could be a sealed, a picture in a sealed envelope, or it could be uh, some remote scene. What's the mechanism? Again, I'm using the term mechanism here loosely, because it seems to be more of something like whatever the process is, it seems to be involving more of a pattern matching thing, not a signal transfer, even though the term signal is used in, in remote viewing. Signal to know it is a common term, but that doesn't refer to a signal from outside somewhere. So models are not there that can really explain this. Now, there are some concepts that I find useful, and uh, this may, may be a little surprising to you, but I think the idea of precognition needs to be looked at deeper. Uh, by that, I mean, it's just simply training one mystery for the other. But it, it may be that when we eventually learn or actually observe what it is that was thought, that we're closing a, a loop with our own future. You know, it doesn't explain how that really happens, but it's more of a, a sensory connection with what you will eventually see or experience. So you're, you're working with the future here. You're referring to retrocausality? Yeah, retrocausation. Yes. So it's something, you know, again, this is just another way of expressing an effect. It doesn't say how, if this is the case, it still doesn't say how that information from the future is decoded. Uh, so let's, let's say we're talking about a, a picture that's sealed in an envelope, and um, you know your task is to describe it three days from now when it's opened and correlates to some event, like they do in what's called associative remote viewing. That doesn't explain how that information gets to you. It just is a a concept that that stretches the time process to from then to now or now to then. That doesn't help explain it, but it seems to track the data better. You know, so if you look at a concealed picture in the future, it would make sense that, that, and you want to describe that in a remote viewing session, it would make sense that, yeah, you, you're seeing your future feedback. You know, it would make sense. It gives you an idea that it's something you know you can do in the future. It doesn't say what the future is. What is opening up is an, another problem. Um, what is the nature of the future? You know, what is time? So we're now back to um, another mystery. So if, if we think we have a little bit of a handle on one, it slips away and we're back into worse shape than we were before. So it's, it's it challenges the concept of what really is the nature of the universe. You know, we, we think we know a lot about the physical reality around us, you know, you you can, I can hit my hand on a desk here and hear sound and I feel everything. But when I think about the, being able to replicate something like that um, with something that hasn't yet happened, seeing a picture in, in a concealed envelope that somebody will show me three days from now, 
man, that's, that's really tough to handle. You know, but you but yet the data proves that you can do this. It, it's a sense this is what you can do with this this ability and poke ahead in time. So what we're really doing, I think, is questioning the nature of time here. So if we can, if we can get, make inroads on that, I think we can have a better understanding of what remote viewing and other forms of psi phenomena, which is a term I like to use because it gets away from labels and uh, it moves us out of um, the idea that it's just a visual or it's just something left over from the historical times and a term that doesn't quite make sense anymore. So the psi phenomenon is, is there. And it, it can now demonstrate it through the remote viewing process. J.P. Ryan did that sufficiently, I think, through his uh, standard card-guessing approach. Other groups have done it as well, using dream studies like they did at the Maimonides uh, Medical Center in, in New York in the 60s and 70s, which was a kind of a parallel effort to remote viewing, although it hasn't received the the attention that the remote viewing work has done. There's still another way of, of experiencing this ability. It doesn't explain it. It just says it's another mode in which we can access this information that's outside of our ordinary way of knowing about things. And if it's in the future, that's that's where it's from. You know, now we have to wrestle with them. Trying to understand that. And of course, the right for causation and linked in with quantum physics and uh, the handshake with the future idea with waves that flow backwards in time. And just this language that allows you to open up the dialogue that still doesn't really give a good idea of, of what this is, what, what kind of universe do we really live in that facilitates this ability. It's, it's, Something I think about occasionally, <laughs> you know, after a while, well, I don't know what to do with it. But it's a- All right. Well, I, I think that's as good a place to end on as any other place. So thank you again for your time, Dale. Okay. And I look forward to talking with you again. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.